Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This coming week, the House of Representatives is scheduled to vote on the sweeping Build Back Better Act, which includes everything from climate investments to immigration reform to major rewrites of the social contract. It's been whittled down drastically from the $6 trillion opening bid from Budget Committee Chairman Bernie Sanders and whittled down further from the $3.5 trillion top line that passed through the initial budget resolution. And now it's hanging by a thread. Senator Joe Manchin remains a holdout, though says he's committed to getting to a final deal. In the House, centrists succeeded in breaking the bipartisan infrastructure bill away from the Build Back Better Act last week in exchange for a promise to vote for the latter bill if the coming score from the Congressional Budget Office matches the White House analysis that was shared with those centrists. The CBO is saying it's not sure when its assessment will be done, but crucially, the holdouts pledged to vote in any event no later than the week of November 15th. We'll find out next week if they stick to their word. If they do, that leaves Joe Manchin as the final boss before this game is beaten. Along the way, though, the bill will have to continue to run the arcane gauntlet of the Senate's reconciliation rules. Those rules have their origin in the neoliberal era's fetish for slashing deficits and have had a profound and distorting effect on the working of the Senate. Ari Rabenhoft, who was until recently a senior aide to Sanders, has spent years grappling with those rules and with the parliamentarian who the Senate allows to enforce them. For a wild romp through the world of budget reconciliation, we're joined now by Ari Rabenhoft. This podcast is brought to you by Diet Dr. Brown's Natural Flavor Black Cherry. Let me tell you, Ryan, when I sit down for a podcast, there is nothing I drink more than Diet Dr. Brown's Natural Flavor Black Cherry, the drink of every Jewish youth since 1952. The way that the podcast world is going, like 100% of listeners would believe that that was a real ad opening <laughs> opening the podcast. There's there's no product that is too off the wall. Are you not be. are you not the magic spoon? We are I mean, hey, if if Diet Dr. Brown's reaches out, that's a product are, that that you can stand behind them. Yeah, who, who are we? If they send you free Diet Dr. Brown's. Whew. There you go. All right, so Ari Rabenhoft, welcome to Deconstructed. Thank you, Ryan. So Ari was a senior aide for Bernie Sanders during his presidential campaign in 2020, also served as a senior aide. Was it in his personal office or in the committee or was it kind of both I when, when the, he was chairman of the budget committee? I was in the personal office. I always worked in the personal office, but it's a very close combination of people at the senior level. The kind of staff all right. works in one right. coordinated fashion. Now, for people who have read my book, We've Got People, they know that Ari was a major character in that book. Was it chapter five or something like I, that? I believe it was. It's a great chapter. Great. Best chapter. Best chapter in the book. For people who haven't read that chapter, how can you talk to people about your career path and how you wound up as you know this uh, senior aide to Sanders over and, and dealing so much with reconciliation? Yeah. Uh, how far do I go back? 
because I'm old now. I came to DC to fight against hunger in America, came down and interned at a hunger nonprofit, realized that that was not that specific world was not the path to change. There were some weird idiosyncrasies about the nonprofit that I was at. It was in a day before the internet. I kind of walked onto Capitol Hill with my resume, which is what you used to do in 2000, which is amazing to think. You just like literally printed out your resume, walked around. Handed it out at different nonprofits and on congressional offices. Congressional offices, walked mm -hmm. around. And look, I had like a friend interning here and you'd use that kind of thing. I got an internship in Ed Markey's office and they basically said, if you can answer our constituent mail backlog, we'll get you a job in six weeks. And I ended up as an intern, uh, a legislative correspondent, which is the person who answers the mail in Strickland's office, bounced from there to was there for about a year and a half. Um, instead of kind of taking the path up Capitol Hill, which is legislative correspondent to legislative assistant to, you know, I decided that I wanted to kind of learn other aspects of politics. And the thing that interested me most was polling. Ended up at a polling firm kind of randomly. Was there for about a year during my time at the polling firm. The internet kind of started to play this major role in politics. And with a friend, went to this guy, Wes Boyd, mm -hmm. at the nascent end of Move On, uh, when Move On was like six people, and said, I have this idea for this online organization called Move On. And then John Kerry won the, uh, won the primary, and John Kerry's campaign- it's 2004. It's 2004. Primary. John Kerry's campaign came to Move On and said, we need more expertise in this internet thing. And actually, Zach Exley and I ended up moving from Move On- over to the Kerry campaign during the general election. The idea was, was that was the place to beat George Bush. From there, I ended up in Harry Reid's office post the, the campaign in the same realm of the most important thing in the world was beating up on George Bush. And Harry Reid seemed to be the place that was willing to let people beat up on George he Bush. He was throwing haymakers. Yeah, he didn't care. He, you know, he was kept, kept calling him a liar and a, a loser. Loser, yeah, yeah. And he apologized for loser, saying that was inappropriate, but he wasn't going to apologize for liar. And it, it's interesting. It wasn't untrue. It's interesting. I think back to those days about what like a controversy was in D.C. So it was like a giant right. controversy that Harry Reid called George Bush a liar. Can you imagine today, today, a politician calling another politician a liar? It being like weeks of oh. <gasps> Ted Cruz just called Joe Biden a liar just the other day, and I didn't it, was even a, know. it was a blip. Yeah, I didn't even notice. Right. So that your time in in Harry Reid's office first familiarized you with you know Senate customs and Senate rules, which are basically in some ways the same thing. The first the first time I arrived for my interview in the Senate office, I interviewed with Reid actually and Susan McHugh, but then I had to interview with Jim Manley. Mm -hmm. Who, Jim, if you're listening, hi, Jim will confirm the story. Jim drags me up to Ted Kennedy's hideaway for the interview. Right. And a hideaway, is a, it's a little kind of closet basically in the, in the in usually the in the basement, but I bet no, he had a much a, nicer a one. No, beautiful right? hideaway. In, right. And his hideaway was like decorated with all JFK mm -hmm. stuff, including the rocking chair, like JFK's rocking chair, which Jim had me sit in. So I'm sitting there like scared I'm going to break JFK's rocking chair. And, but what Jim sat me down and said was, look, you're this online person, you're native to online, but you have to learn the customs and practices of the United States Senate. This building is a building that runs on customs and practices and you have to learn them. Right. And so you come to work for Bernie Sanders after his 2016 yeah, I was, presidential campaign. I was working campaign. at Sirius XM at the time. Right. 
hosting a radio show, decided I wanted to get back into politics. Had always, uh, you've known me for a long, I've always been more left of the people I've worked for mm -hmm. naturally in DC. I've always been kind of a lefty irritant inside mainstream entities. And I met Bernie basically after the election introduced by, uh, by a few people and we hit it off and he was like, come work in my Senate office. So one of the first things you end up doing then is the tax cut bill in late 2017. Trump's tax cut, right? Goes through the reconciliation process. Right. No, you well, got, I mean, you didn't do it, obviously. No. There were there were two. Well, the first was the health care bill getting killed. In oh, that's right. They tried to do that through. They did that through reconciliation. They tried right. to do and that. So what is reconciliation? Like, give us a so, little. Yeah, sure. Reconciliation is a process created by the congressional by the by the Congressional Budget Act. What it basically says is you the during the eight, 70s and 80s, there were all these, especially it increased during the 80s. There were all these designs on we have to have these processes available to us that would make life harder for people to vote to increase the deficit. And this because there was a huge deficit fetish. Actually, what, what's always been interesting to me about the deficit fetish is Republicans were clearly always political with it. Like for Republicans, it was always like when Democrats are in charge, oh, my God, deficits. But as soon as they got in power, they were like, no, whatever. It, deficits, deficits don't matter. Deficits don't matter. The Dick Cheney quote. For Democrats, there was a group of Democratic senators. Uh, Kent Conrad is the one that comes like mm -hmm. hardest to mind. Who budget committee chair? At one budget point. committee chair at one point. Who legitimately, in their heart of hearts, thought deficits were evil. Thought we had to deal with the budget deficit. Thought it was the greatest problem in the world. We're in kind of the Pete Peterson, who was a billionaire who spent half his fortune. I think it was like five hundred million dollars mm -hmm. yep. on deficit think tanks in D.C. who and convinced the entirety of the Democratic caucus more than even uh, conservatives that deficits and the problems of deficits were the most important element. And one of the things they tried to do, especially in the 70s and 80s, to create processes to make it more difficult to raise the deficit. And that's the point of the kind of budget committee structure. That's the point of create of the CBO. <laughs> That's the point. And the reconciliation process was this idea that you could have this process for things that would cut the deficit for budgetary items that would cut the deficit. It would easily fast track them. Mm -hmm. And then they could vote to add things on that would raise the deficit. But it required this procedural process in budget reconciliation that basically allowed you to you had to pass a budget, which then, oh, they'll have to pass a budget that's balanced. Right. And, and the spirit of that influenced the so-called super committee that emerged during the Obama administration, where the idea behind it was if this super committee could agree on a bunch of budget cuts, that it could go through on a majority only vote right. and their up point or down. And so like, the, right. So the, the idea was we need to make it hard to spend money, easy to slash. Yes. And the problem is at the kind of creation of these processes, they never viewed tax cuts in the straight way Republicans did as part of budget reconciliation. That was a that was created during the George W. Bush years. Right. That we can do and didn't tax they fire somebody over? They that? fired a parliamentarian right. over it. Bob Dove, right? Yeah. Yeah. So basically what the reconciliation rules are, there's rules that govern the budget process called the Bird Rule. And there's stuff in the Bird Rule that is fairly simple and non 
controversial. Like you, the reason Republicans have never cut Social Security in reconciliation, I actually have been asked that question numerous times, mm -hmm. is because in the Bird Rule, you can't touch Social Security right. in reconciliation. So it spares Social Security. That puts that over here. But it has to be significantly budget, like budgetary, which who knows what that means. Right. So basically in the process, there's a budget resolution. The budget resolution, which we've already done, which we've like, already done for this, for this particular bill. bill. That this, was the three point right. five trillion dollar right. bill passed in July. Right. And that bill says the Senate Finance Committee shall be allowed to spend X. The Senate Judiciary Committee, which is reconciled in this case, so you could do immigration, mm -hmm. shall be allowed to spend Y. And programs fit into committees in a fairly non-controversial. By the way, this is what the parliamentarian spends a lot of time doing. That is a necessary and useful function is Senator Warren introduces a bill. The parliamentarian's office says, OK, let me read that bill quickly. OK, that goes into the help committee. Right. Occasionally there are fights about that, but it's very rare and it's pretty standard where things go. And some things surprise people when they don't like Medicare goes in the finance committee and not in the help committee. Right. For example. So the budget resolution lays out a structure. It says, OK, you have 3.5 trillion to spend. These are the committees by which which you will spend it in. And then you do a budget reconciliation bill that says where that money is actually going to be spent. And the budget reconciliation bill has to come in under the number in and by committee by committee, by the way, under the number in the in the budget resolution, right. which makes it fairly complicated and esoteric and horrible. Right. So early 2000s, the Republicans decide that they want to use this vehicle to drive through their tax cuts. Yep. They, they get resistance from the parliamentarian who says, no, it's not what it's intended for. They can the guy. Yes. Bring in their They've own. They've twice canned people right. for this. And because they did this through reconciliation, that's why in 2011, uh, you, you wind up having a new fight over the Bush tax cuts yep. because they expired after the after the 10 year window. And so you're 2017 Republicans run on repealing Obamacare. Repeal and replace, allegedly. But yes, first step is repeal. So they write a reconciliation bill. Because pieces of Obamacare were passed through right. reconciliation, so you could go back and take them out through reconciliation. Right. Pretty non-controversial there, actually. Right, because the, the the history on that was was wild. First they passed it with, you know, getting you know, through with their sixty vote supermajority. Right. And then they lost the Massachusetts Senate race to Scott Brown, that special election. They now have only fifty nine and they hadn't quite finished everything. So they figured out ways to tweak it through reconciliation. And so now they're going to try to repeal it through reconciliation. And now Elizabeth McDonough comes into play because they have to take to her their provisions. Yeah. How did how did she approach that? I mean, what I remember from that fight and I, the the these reconciliation bills, I was much more central to for a number of reasons. One, when you're in the minority, it's very right. different uh, in terms of how you're dealing with it. And to my position shifted, so it's much more central to the legislative process this time. The precedent set under the Bush years was you could just do the tax stuff right. under it. And the Obamacare preferences were set. And there were there were some things around the edges. My favorite one, I don't know if you remember this, that Democrats pulled. They had a title to the bill. And the title, a page of the bill itself, the title section of the bill was not a burdable. So they had to go back and like... Yeah. Right. Like, like you know, basically, this comma doesn't count. Yeah, it was like you can't have a short title to a having a short title doesn't comply with the bird rule. So they had to go back and like 
which just cost them days. It, it right. drove it all the way to December. It was just to right. look, just to mess with them, just to mess with them a bit. Which right. you know what? Fine. There were little things like that, but most of it. Look, the problem with the reconciliation process as it stands is Republicans can do all the tax cutting they want, but Democrats can't do the policies we want. It's designed right. in this way, and not just designed in that way, built in that way by Republicans kind of breaking the rules to rebuild it in their image. Right. And firing a parliamentarian. Right. In order to do it. And and re the thing Republicans got away with more than anything else, the Anwar decision, the CBO scores it and says it would raise around a billion dollars if we opened Anwar to drilling. So that year there were two reconciliation. Let's, let's talk about it. There were two reconciliation bills. There was the Obamacare one, which went down with McCain. Right. McCain's thumb was voting down the reconciliation package. Right. right. Then they went back and were like, OK, we didn't get Obamacare killed. Let's go do some. Ta Let's do what Republicans do, which is cut taxes. In this one, they needed every Republican on board. They needed Lisa Murkowski's vote. And her price was Anwar, which is something she has wanted. And the Alaska congressional delegation has wanted for a long time drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. When I was in Ed Markey's office intern, that was actually his biggest issue in like 2002, mm. 2001, 2001. So it, it had been swimming around for a long time. So they tried to put it in reconciliation and it scored at a billion dollars, which sounds weird that the parliamentarian ruled that was significantly budgetary right. when let's say minimum wage was not significantly budgetary, but leaving that to the side, right. the effect on the economy is not. But to get to today's problem, which I'm sure we're going to get to, the CBO scores that at a billion dollars. Now we know the actual retail price. Basically, they scored it at a billion and they're 99% off on the score. Mm -hmm. It was like nothing, right? It, it didn't raise anything. And it, the CBO totally biffed the score when it came to the real world. And they had, they've been flirting with blocking drilling through this reconciliation package, which would be ironic if uh, she said, well, actually, the CBO was wrong. So now, yeah. now you can't do it through reconciliation anymore. You can approve the drilling, but you can't block it. It would be, it would be quite ironic, which, by the way under the rubric would actually weirdly be the correct <laughs> ruling of this insane process. But I also think it would further delegitimize the office. Right. But I think the the biggest problem with the reconciliation process is that it's based in a different time in Washington. All of these processes are based on the idea that these institutions are not political. The parliamentarian's office, the CBO, the courts are non-political entities that all of these processes are based on the idea that these institutions exist above politics. It's from a time which is not that long ago from my first trip to the Hill where, you know, where Ted Kennedy and the Bush administration would get together to pass major education policy. That's not the world we exist in. Everything is is political. There is no institution above politics. And the idea that this week we're in this, we're waiting for the CBO to make sure their scores align with this. No, like, Scoring is one of those processes held up as a scientific process where the, the economists are going to put in the magic machine. The problem, but as you just mentioned, they missed Anwar by a billion dollars. Well, it's not just that. It's scoring itself is inherently political. And the example I'd like to give is everyone's favorite question from the 2020 presidential campaign, which is how are you going to pay for that Which on Medicare for All, which gets to how much does it cost? How much does Medicare for All cost, Ryan? According to all of the like George Mason economists, they'll tell you it costs $33 trillion but over what is 10 U years. That's George Mason University. Right. What is UMass Amherst? 
say? I think they said like 12 trillion. I think Rob Pollan's score Something was- Something like that. Was 12 trillion. And then there was a Urban Institute score of- 26 trillion. Yeah. And I'm pointing this out in that each of these institutions scored it differently, and which is- Employ PhDs. They all- And, and all employ- and, and all yeah. employ people who are quite- Like Robert Pollan at UMass is a noted economist. Why is he wrong and why is George Mason right? Why is Urban right and George Mason wrong? And what would the CBO say? My, my hands are up in the air in a who right. knows category. My point is scoring in, is, in and of itself is a subjective process. Unless the bill says, you shall spend $1 billion. And even then there are subjective elements that go into that mm -hmm. process. So scoring is subjective. You end up with this process that's based on institutions that are supposed to not be political. And now we reach a point in this reconciliation process we, where Democrats are waiting for a score from a former George Bush, George W. Bush, Treasury Department official appointed by Republican senators to his position because CBO is a four-year position appointed by the chair of the budget committee rotating between the House and Senate. Phil Schwagel was appointed by the last Republican chair of the Senate Budget Committee. So, right. so we are talking and look, but Phil's, a, you know, he does his job. You get these things. How dare you? How? Like vapors in DC, how dare you suggest that Phil Schwagel's anything? That there might be gambling in this casino. Yes, how dare you suggest there might be gambling in this casino? How dare you suggest a lifelong Republican economist might come up with a score that I would disagree with? And, and look, it's not, the weird thing is, Ryan, it's not even that I think he's dishonest or I think he's, he's even thumbing the scale. These scores are based on right, biases subjective and subjective biases, yeah. political biases in terms of what inputs you put into the system. Sorry, we jumped way ahead here, but I think that's where you were going. Yes, and before we get to there though, let's, let's run over the individual mandate fight from yep. the uh, Affordable Care Act, because Elizabeth McDonough, the parliamentarian, and she talked about this in a, a commencement address she gave in 2018, being under a lot of pressure and, and facing a lot of tough questions. Uh, and she ends up ruling that Republicans- Can we not use that advising? That's, yes, thank you. Sorry, well, she, I, I'm, I'm saying it from her perspective right now. She thinks of her. Yeah, that's why she should rulings. be. That's why she should be fired. Yes, and we, will, we definitely want to get to that. She thinks of her rulings as rulings, especially as she delivers them in sometimes in one word. Yes, rulings. That's that's not an opinion at that point. That's just here's my edict. So she talked about how she had to struggle with these difficult decisions. One of the ones she made was. Uh, saying that you cannot repeal the individual mandate or the employer mandate through reconciliation. So why doesn't Mitch McConnell at that point fire her? Because I think online, a lot of people think, well, Republicans always fire the parliamentarian. Well, they went but back. They always. She gave them an out and they went back and took it, which was the dumbest out in the history of outs, where in conversations this year, there was a there was a lot of anger expressed that this that that would even be questioned that that was not appropriate. What she said is you can't get rid of the individual mandate. But what the individual mandate did was say you have to have health insurance or you pay this fine through the tax code. What you could do is reduce the fine to zero. And that was her volunteering that. I, I actually that don't know, but the way it works is there are lots of conversations with the parliamentarian's office on both sides. And it does, she didn't even have to say it. It's okay, let's go. There was another right. way around it. Who knows what her and the Republicans were saying? I We just don't. Right. But 
it would not be out of line for her even to she's an advisor to the right like that's what an advisor actually should that's what a lawyer and advisor does i don't know if she did that she probably didn't actually but also there are a lot of smart people who work on these committees who are like okay if you're going to say no to that here's my thing in my back pocket maybe you'll say yes to this right and so let's talk about the advice versus verdict mm -hmm. distinction so why is it that a staffer has come to have her opinions treated as rulings like when did that start to become the custom it's it's interesting because i think it's more recent first off there have been times in the past where the chair is just in the 60s and 70s where the chairs basically said you're an advisor shut up mm -hmm. like i'm going to do what i want and if they do that just to be clear if they do that that's the ruling that's the, the ruling the chair, the chair who is a senator or the vice president if yes the president of the senate here here's the way to think about it there are officers of the senate right and those officers if you're emailing those officers it's at so if you're emailing the secretary of the senate it's whatever the and somebody in their office it's at secretary.senate.gov there's no at parliamentarian.senate.gov it's right. under a different i'm not going to give away her email address i have but emailed it's, her for comment but it's under at sec.senate.gov yeah it's yeah. under a different department right which goes to the structure of the building like if you email bernie's office it's sanders.senate.gov she is not an officer of the senate but it's not at senate she's not right. even like the cbo director who there is a very statutory process for how you hire fire uh, go there's a statutory process in law the parliamentarian works for the secretary of the senate the secretary of the senate who works for the majority leader can fire the parliamentarian whenever they want for whatever reason they want every senate employee has to sign a nice statement saying you're at will and you won't form a union uh which should change by the way right that's a whole different subject but the point is she's an employee she's an advisor she's no better than another senior advisor to chuck schumer or the president of the senate she's giving advice now, there are reasons to respect that advice when it is based on knowledge, et cetera. There are reasons to look to that advice as senators should listen to their advisors. But there are times when senators say, you know what? I know better. You know why? In the words of Bill Douster, he, uh, who's kind of a legendary lawyer in the Senate, there are certain people who have certificates. And people who have certificates get to make decisions. Republicans and by that he means senators like yeah, it means election election certificate from right. this from their state secretary of state so you come to the parliamentarian and say can I do this can I do Medicare can I raise the minimum wage in reconciliation the advice of the parliamentarian can be yes I believe you can it can be no I believe you can't but there's a third option which has been used a lot historically the last time it was used that I recall that was a major moment was on the Yemen War Powers Act resolution, actually, this piece of advice from the parliamentarian, which is, I believe that question should be put to the Senate, which means the Senate has to kind of come up with its own precedent here. I'm not going to. Right. You could say, here's the closest precedent that I, with my training in Senate history, have been able to find. But there's not one, so but, I'm going to put this to the Senate. Right. And so the, the apex of this notion, or hopefully it's an apex of this notion of the parliamentarian as judge yeah to me was the minimum wage decision in which she released a one-line ruling that basically said no the one line was you can't do this something i don't remember the exact quote you might because just probably a, the entire have, affair was I probably have the, email somewhere. the other judicial aspect of this 
feels like the process itself. Like, don't yeah. you guys t talk about that? Don't you guys brief and yeah, like so argue? And the like, process itself. Like she ought to be wearing a robe, feels like. The thing that was so insulting about the one line at the time was the process that was made, that staff was made to go through. So first, there are a bunch of, a bunch of lawyers, Bernie, I have a bunch of lawyers who, there are a bunch of lawyers mainly located in the different committees. The, the process works, the current process, because this is a, kind of up to the parliamentarian, by the way, there's no statute right. for this process. There'll be a partisan meeting, meaning Democrats will sit down with her and kind of go over their things. And by the way, in the course of a reconciliation bill, these meetings last days because it's not just minimum wage. It's thousands, it's 2, of issues. pages and you yeah. every line gets torn over. There's briefs. There's literal briefs drawn up for the parliamentarian's office. And these briefs run dozens of pages sometimes. And it basically the briefs are legal briefs. They say, here are the precedents. Here's why. Here's why this comports under the bird rule. Here's the law. They're legal briefs. And then there's a kind of bipartisan meeting where the Republicans and the Democrats send in their staff and they sit in the parliamentarian's office or in another room in the Capitol. And both sides have an argument about each side kind of presents and the parliamentarian asks some questions and they have a little back and forth. And then the parliamentarian says, great, I will uh, do this. How, and how'd that argument go? Like, how did you feel about how it went? I, generally, every single person on our side walked out of there, there was no question that our side had the arguments. Mm -hmm. It felt like the literal equivalent of we were going into the Supreme Court and having a great litigator argue and Republicans were armpit farting at <laughs> the parliamentarian. And there was one moment where I remember I was on the phone listening and one of the Re Republicans made an argument, but they completely misread the CBO score. Like just had the numbers wrong? No, had like what it was about wrong. Okay. Like just a complete misread of the CBO score. And another staffer who is kind of widely known as a aggressive, loud individual jumped out and kind of just like, I, I know who that might be. But... It was like, what the hell? No. And like, you're just wrong. It was such a basic mistake and like showed like a lack of care and preparation and that. And the general sense was that our faith in doing minimum wage went up in that those moments. And then that ruling came down after it was in the evening. And it was just what was offensive about it was if you're an advisor, like, hey, this doesn't comport with the precedent. Let me explain why I don't think this comports with the precedent because da 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 because I'm advising. Instead, it was a one line. The line was I'm not I'm paraphrasing here. It was something like minimum wage is not significantly budgetary. Boom, done. What was the reaction from senators to that? Well, I can tell you at a staff level, I, and I can say certain senators were quite upset. Um, at a staff level, I think the reaction was, it wasn't shock. It was just like, this is the problem with the process. And the problem, the other problem is they're also trying to juggle this entire bill with the parliamentarian's office at that moment. So it becomes even more important. And then staffers get into this realm where like, but we don't want to offend her. If we offend her, we're going to lose rulings on these other 10 things. You know, this is... 12 committees involved, a lot of senior staff in the Senate involved in these things. Well, if we offend her on this, are we going to lose the ruling on 
X, Y, and Z if we start. And the problem is you end up treating, like the problem is we call them rulings. They're not, they're right. advisory, they're ad advice. And that advice can be ignored. But first off, the media has elevated it to the level of ruling. And second, the members- Parliamentarian says X is the headline. Yeah. Like, done. This is a person who has no statutory authority at all. The parliamentarian is the most powerful person in Washington. That's, that's so, that's like saying the most powerful person in Washington is, I, I don't know. Chuck Schumer's chief of staff. But that, that even makes a little bit more sense. <laughs> Like it's, you know, that that would make slightly more sense if, if Mike Lynch were the most powerful person in Washington. Like it, it it's it's an advisor on this one tiny realm of thing. And that is controlling the entirety of the Biden agenda. That's ridiculous. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And so they decide to accept her advice, strip it out. Bernie puts it up for a vote, but that requires 60 votes because they've already accepted her. Which we didn't even get 50. Advice. And you fell well short, I think 42? Yeah. I think. So why? What is it about the Senate's customs and culture and politics that made it so, as far as I could tell, it was barely even entertained or maybe not even entertained at all that they would just I think say thank are, you for this advice? There are few, We're going to move forward. There are a few things. I think first... There was, we had a process need to have that accepted by the parliamentarian. There was a strategic plan that could have passed minimum wage, avoiding an up or down vote on minimum wage itself. Right. So to, right. So what you're, what you're basically saying is there were people that did not want to vote for to raise the minimum but wage. But would have voted for the entire bill. And if the parliamentarian it, right. had it put it in the bill, said it's okay to be in the bill, there were ways to have it get into a final version of the bill without any member of the Senate having to take an up or down vote on that specific provision. Right, like Maggie Hassan and Tom Carper are not going to well, take down the entire bill. And there were two layers, I would suggest. The other, the other suggestion I would make is there would have been some level of negotiation that didn't exist because of this. Right, because once once it's going to happen, how much then tax? Start how much? To... Like we had a plan that was how much tax credits are we going to put in for small businesses to make the moderates happy? Are there certain provisions of the bill that need to be slightly different? There was the a tipped provisions. Yeah, what yeah. needs to be different in the tipped provisions? But that negotiation never got gets to get started because it cuts it out of the loop. And the only way to take it back into the loop is now to have a vote, an up or down vote on is do we overrule the parliamentarian which democrats did not have the votes for right 
And by the way, can I say, as a staff member who was one of the kind of leading staff members, both on the bill and on this minimum wage process and a bunch of other things, when Bernie insisted on a vote on minimum wage, because in Votorama, any senator can insist on any vote, the amount of screaming I got at me by other staff was, I have never felt that before. And let me be clear, none from leadership. Schumer's office never, I didn't scream, mm -hmm. but like rank and file senators, some of whom are very supportive of the minimum wage, one of whom was on a group call with me and I'm not gonna dime him out because that's not, I, I really do think that's unfair and I have to like literally four letter word cursing at me on a Senate call about how, why was my boss doing this thing to bring up, force this vote? Why was he making, forcing people into this tough vote? And I was like, it's not a tough vote, just vote yes. Very easy vote. Yeah, what was driving that? Uh, the the anger, what was driving the anger? Because it feels like, like you said, not that tough a vote. What makes it so tough for them? I think a number of these senators like to get money from the NRA, the National Restaurant Association, not the National Rifle Association. I think there were issues there. I think, you know, these people are very process driven. So why are you, why are you making us do this? This is, it's why Rand Paul's unpopular on the Republican side. He's constantly caught forcing them to take votes they don't like. These guys, all they want to do is not take dangerous votes. And, and they want to be protected by leadership from not having to take dangerous votes. And protected by the parliamentarian. So that might answer my next question, which is if Democrats really wanted to move this ambitious agenda through reconciliation, why not fire the parliamentarian and hire somebody more pliant right away or after the first ARP? Let, let's say, okay, so first, right away, first let's take right away. So Schumer takes office in January, early January. Right. And I think, I think the reason there, I would have argued personally tear the bandaid off then. I, the Senate doesn't ever move like that. And then you're right in an impeachment trial, which is where the parliamentarian actually does play a very critical advisory role in keeping this very rare procedure in line, moving forward, everybody kind of doing the things they're supposed to be doing. And, and to her credit, let's be clear, Elizabeth McDonough, on all accounts, did a very, very good job. She ran a good impeachment. She, she ran a good impeachment, which is actually one of the more important roles. That's what the job is supposed to be. Like Pat Leahy, who you're now sitting in this chair, you have to do this, this, and this. John Roberts, when he was sitting in the chair, you have to do this. These count, these are the, this is the flow of procedure. This is how it works. This is, you know, it allows the process to move forward without getting jammed up with, uh, in, in procedural garbage. And she, by all accounts, did a very, very good job with that. And I think, a, I think that's that, I think she is, she's been around the Senate for a long, long time. Late nineties. Late nineties. Yeah. She was appointed to this, her current seat by Reed. She is just well-liked across the, in the, in the Senate world. And I think Schumer was worried that if he fired the parliamentarian with the, you know, because you wanted to put in somebody more pliant, I think there was a belief that you would have run into problems with Manchin and Cinema if you did something solely to game the system. And I think that's the, and that's by, the belief. And January 14th is when Biden unveils his American rescue plan before he even takes office. So right. as the, before the impeachment trial is even over, really, yeah. they're already beginning negotiations on ARP. So that was a weird time because we were still, the Senate was barely open. Uh, also, you had the fences around the Senate, which made life 
a pain in the butt. And every day, a group of like 30 to 40 Senate staff would get on a conference call. And I think that started like the week before Biden unveiled the agenda. Mm -hmm. And it was like finance, like budget committee writing the reconciliation bill. What is the number? How are we going to do this? Finance committee. Do you have like everybody has to get their final text to CBO by this date? And that work started even before January 14th, as I recall, to like that reconciliation process moved in six weeks. Okay. So let's say you, you can't get it done before that. What about afterwards? And what good is having a Senate majority leader who's named, nicknamed Wall Street Chuck if he can't find some Wall Street CEO to come in and bribe her with a million dollar job? I don't think she wants that. Bribe her into I, I'm going to be honest. There's no, I don't think she'd take it. She loves the. She likes you know. that. Jo that job is her, is her dream. Like, I, I, that's, I don't think that's what she wants. If she wanted that. She could have had that a while ago, yeah. There are a bunch of staffers on the Hill who sometimes get pegged with like, I'll give you a staffer that's a favorite of yours. I'll give you him that gets pegged with, well, he's just selling out to the to the corporations, like Wendell Primus. No, right. Wendell's, Wendell's right. if Wendell wanted to sell out, he w Wendell believes the stuff he believes. Wendell resigned in protest from the Clinton administration. Right. If this, Wendell- This is, for people who don't know, he they, they jo he's jokingly, half-jokingly referred to as Speaker Wendell in the House. He's Nancy Pelosi's long, long, long time serving aide who, resigned from the Clinton administration in the 90s over welfare reform, saying that it would increase child poverty and he couldn't do that on his watch. And Wendell, like I, Wendell also is one of those staffers who is widely, Ryan has written about this. He opposes Medicare for all. He's mm -hmm. kind of vocal about it. But it's not that he's selling out to some corporation like he he's in his 70s, I think. I don't want to age him, but he's got to be. be up there. He's going to retire after this. He's not selling out. He believes in this institutional process crap that I don't, but it's not a sellout thing. It's a, this is, and there are a number of staffers in the Senate who could have sold out 10 years ago for a million dollars. Right. Then they're just not going to. Like, that's not what they want. If she wanted that, she could have had that two years ago and live a much nicer life. Because the parliamentarian's job, it's a hard job. It's an easy- all night, like- Yeah, you have to be there when the Senate's there. And that includes the times when nobody's sitting on the floor doing anything. Until the Senate gavels out, you're there. I mean, it's not... Right. Your, your life is not controlled by your own. It's not the funnest job in the world. Right. So, yeah, I don't think that works. I think his feeling, Sh Schumer's feeling, and I can't speak for Schumer, obviously, was it would have caused others in the caucus. And at the time, the second bill, the worry, once the first bill passed, the worry about the second bill wasn't just Manchin and Cinema internally. It was Mark Warner. There were a number of other kind of deficit hawks who were worries of leadership at that point. Right. And I think any move like that, they would have regarded right or wrong. Look, I would have, I have been privately and publicly for firing the parliamentarian for, I think, since the first day. Literally, mm -hmm. I just think you should roll that position. And the reason I am for firing her, by the way, is not about a particular ruling. It goes back to something we said before. It's that it's called a ruling, that she views right. it as a ruling. If you watch that speech, the speech at um, Vermont uh, Law School, Law yeah. School is the reason she should be fired. Not because of anything she said about a particular ruling, but because she views herself as above elected officials as opposed to an advisor to elected officials. She views herself as as more important than representative democracy. And that's why she should be fired, because 
There is no staff member of the United States Senate who should be more powerful than anybody who has been elected to the United States Senate. And that, and if somebody thinks they are, they should be fired that day. Ooh. And by the way, the CBO score on minimum wage was also problematic. How so? So for years, all the academic literature, and there was new studies from Berkeley, there was studies from a num like every time it was studied, everybody said, it's patently obvious that raising the minimum wage saves the federal government money. Why? Well, it will cost a little bit because you'll have to raise some contractor wages up to, to 15. But but Biden was going to 15 in contractor wages anyway. So that's mooted. Yeah. So that's mooted. If somebody's making if a Walmart employee is making $15 an hour, they're not getting food stamps anymore. Right. They're not on SNAP. They're not on a bunch of the health care provisions switch over. You switch from Medicaid to Obamacare, like Obamacare provisions. There are depending on the state. There are a number of instances that happen. If you raise right because now companies are paying people more and which means the federal government subsidizes those companies wages less yes and by the way those people pay taxes right who aren't paying because people who make ten dollars an hour don't actually pay federal income tax in the end and it's not just the 15 it's the guy making 15 now goes to 18. it's right. the guy who's making eight like there's a general upward right. surge which causes taxes to increase housing subsidies go down like a bunch of federal subsidies go away basically you it's why the child tax credit's so successful you yeah you're paying one end but you're actually right saving on the other somewhat everyone had been in there the cbo came back with the score said no 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 raising minimum wage increases the deficit and this is the bush official this is phil schwagel now his rationale and look it might be right by the way their version might be right versus every academic version published before. But their model said that there is one group of people whose wages will rise that will substantially impact the federal budget. Home health care workers. Medicaid pays home health care mm -hmm. workers. Most home health care workers make under 15 an hour, which by the way is a fucking travesty. Let's let's why you can't find it, it is a workers, moral right. blight on this country that the people caring for our elderly and our sick are also leads to elder abuse and a lot of theft from yeah, elderly it's, people. It's terrible. Those yeah. people should make fit. Let's, let's be clear. If that's right. like raising their wages is actually one of the most moral and fundamental right. arguments for why you need a minimum wage raise, because it is disgusting that that is going on. His argument was that because of that modeling increase, and then he reduced the savings in the social programs down, it increased the federal budget. Now, for our point, by the way, the Mountie increased the federal budget was enough that we thought we were getting a better argument for the parliamentarian, right. actually. We had to find ways to pay for it, which we found, but because right. of the how it works. But the point is that score was way out of line with kind of everybody estimated that it would be X. I think that score was in the 70 billion range. Sounds right. The other thing that was interesting was it was way out of line with what the CBO for the weeks before was kind of telling us, signaling where the, the CBO will signal like, we'll be about here, to, we don't know yet. They were signaling in the $10 billion range either way. <laughs> right. They ended up with a $70 billion score, which was insane. Which is, uh, we'll get to this later, but that's, that's nerve wracking for Democrats who are now relying on the CBO from signaling that they got from the CBO that it's going to be in line with what their estimates were, which is what's required then to get these moderates, got Gottheimer and the others yes. to vote for it next week, which now they're saying they might not even get it. I don't know. Anyway, we can return to that, but I want to, I want to yeah. do the immigration question because yeah. she, after the criticism from that followed from her ruling on the minimum wage, yeah. 
she released a I have it right here. How many pages is this? It was One, a two, two and a half pages. And that was that was just as inappropriate, by the way. Right. So let me read you the first line because I think this really tells you and underscores your point. She writes, this is how she begins her opinion. Uh, the question before us is whether a series of proposed amendments to the Immigration and Nationality Act, it feels like a Supreme Court justice is writing that. The, the question yeah. the question before us. The qu question before who? You know who, who the question is? Who is the us here? Yeah, right. the, because this is actually the exact problem. The us isn't her. Mm -hmm. The us is Kamala Harris. On a legal, technical, and every single way, it is Kamala Harris's decision. Us is Kamala Harris. Right. Not Elizabeth McDonough. And so then, because she's required to list out her reasons for rejecting this, and, and by the way, it's not a final rejection because they're coming back to her with more. Yeah, backup. As we talked about before with Obamacare, mm -hmm. uh, the individual mandate, you'll have backup ideas right. in your pocket sometimes. So they're coming back to her with some other narrow, narrowly tailored ideas. But this is the one part I wanted to read you and get your reaction to this. So she writes, the reasons that people risk their lives to come to this country to escape religious and political persecution, famine, war, unspeakable violence, and lack of opportunity in their home countries cannot be measured in federal dollars. The same is true of the value of having the security of LPR status in this country, lawful permanent residence. So she's saying that, that it's so profound. This is somebody who was an INS trial attorney, by yes. the way, and de deported people from a New Jersey detention center, as far as people can tell. Uh, she's saying it's so profoundly important, that the policy is so profoundly positive for these people, that therefore, that the beauty of it outweighs any budgetary which impact so then all health care should be off there all education right, policy death. should right. it was beautiful in the last reconciliation bill that we were able to give kids after school programs how about re cutting child poverty in half is rather profound it's it's rather every everything at that size is rather has a rather profound impact on a drilling in anwar that probably like, not rather profound well it probably wrecks the, the profound beauty of the wild the national yes. wildlife refuge I mean, but that's also not her job. Her job isn't to weigh the profound. Right. There, there actually is a CBO score on immigration. And by the way, in 2005, John Cornyn put immigration in a reconciliation bill. There, there's precedent there. But and, and this, again, goes to the point of her usurpation. She argues in this ruling that, well, that doesn't count because nobody challenged it. In other words, the Senate decided that immigration was okay to go in 2005. Yeah. But the staffer, the parliamentarian, did not Decide. weigh in on that. And so Which, therefore, it doesn't count as precedent. It's only precedent to this parliamentarian if she or a previous parliamentarian has directly weighed in, which is just bonkers. Yeah, completely bonkers. And my bet is there was some sort of parliamentary maneuvering right. around that. My bet is because of the politics of that immigration status, there was probably a meeting and the parliamentarian said, no, this is fine. Right. This is acceptable. And it was done that, behind the that scenes. That parliamentarian was probably not a former INS trial attorney. Yeah. And who which, knows? Which and, and I don't say that to say that she hates immigrants like she. No, but it gives a biases towards. It gives a bias around how important you think an issue is. Look, I think I had a fight with a reporter like two months ago. Not unusual for me. as <laughs> Ryan. Can, and they were basically saying, I'm a non-biased reporter. And look. You can attempt to be a fair reporter. You can 
there are good reporters in DC who move beyond their biases. You know what the signal to me is of a reporter who can't move beyond their biases? A reporter who can't acknowledge that they are biased. Because everybody, we all have intrinsic biases built into us based on our histories, based on our experience, based on our education, based on a million things. And whenever anyone proclaims they are constitutionally above bias, guess who the most biased person in the room is? Right. And so here we are, let's say that they do manage to next week move the reconciliation package through the House of Representatives. Because technically the statement that Gottheimer and his gang signed said in no event later than the week of November 15th, even if the score is not ready. We'll see if they stick to that. Dates have not been very firm throughout this entire process. Uh, to... You know, legislative days can... That's can... Right. <laughs> right. There is a rule in the Senate and the House that you can extend a day beyond a day. In fact, the October 26th Rules Committee hearing only ended last week. Yeah, it's, it's so, still October 26th. It's like a uh, multi-week yeah. day. Days can last a long yes. time, Ryan. So let's say they do pass it, though, because Manchin seems to be the bigger issue. What, what remains controversial from a reconciliation perspective? Um, uh, I think we haven't. So immigration. Immigration. We haven't heard about prescription drugs and where she's going to land on that, right? Unless I could be behind. That would be wild if I don't the think... whole point is to, to impact the budget. I know, but I think there's a chance she could say certain portions of it are not significantly budgetary. I don't think she'd be right, but I also right. don't think a number of her rulings have been right. Right. Now, if she did that, I think I, I, I don't even know what you do at that point, but I think she could. And if you look at her statements on minority rights in by minority, I mean, Senate minority rights, mm -hmm. not minority, racial minority or ethnic minority rights, it would be well in line with her kind of statements to do something like that, to say, yes, this is significantly budgetary, but saying Medicare can negotiate is one thing, but doing this thing where you limit it to this and do this deal and this functional line, that's takes it off of significantly budgetary and like... And I don't know what the current language is, actually. I'd have to look at it. But I think you can always come up with an excuse that something isn't compliant right. with the bird rule. Now, and we've spent a lot of time criticizing her for the role that she's taken on. But in some ways... It's not her fault. Isn't it's the, the sen Yeah. It's the institutions. Like, I can't blame somebody wholly when the institution has allowed them to do this. Right. The Senate senators almost appreciate this. I would guess. Like it, it feels like they like having yeah, well, somebody there, that they can point There's to. the concept of um that I think is often overused, the uh, rotating villain mm -hmm. concept. I, I often think that's not true. There are just the rotating villain isn't a rotating villain. It's just a lot of villains. There are a lot of villains who have a lot of different points in their villainy. The institutionalists in the Senate, of which there are a number, I think appreciate having an institutionalist parliamentarian. And by institutionalist, it's a dedication to like the 70s Senate, mm -hmm. which doesn't exist. My first day in the Senate, I'm jumping around here, but my first day in the Senate in 2004, I did a presentation for a number of very senior members, chiefs of staff, senior staffers, chiefs of staff, et cetera, on how the internet was going to kind of change how you could think about things politically. And one of my points that I made was that local groups will be as informed as national groups about legislative maneuvering, and you can't depend on national organizations to give you cover with the local organizations anymore. That the local organizations will have instant access to all the information 
national organizations have, and the local organizations tend to be much more activisty, tend to care much more, have no relationships in DC, so don't give yeah, They don't care. Don't right. care, but care about this issue. And the national group, which was their funnel of information, will no longer be able to cover for, for you. And I gave this whole presentation, and this chief of staff walked up to me, who I think has passed on, so I'm going to leave him out of this. And he, uh, he walked up to me after and he said, he said, Ari, you know this building got real fucked up when C-SPAN was turned on, when C-SPAN turned their cameras on. You're going to fuck it up even more. And, well, and I was like, well, it's not me. Yeah. <laughs> the world is. But the institution, like when people say, oh, I wish Chuck Schumer were like Lyndon Johnson. Well, okay. I think that's a misreading of both the Senate, who Lyndon Johnson was, et cetera. But also the world is a different, you couldn't, have, if Lyndon Johnson were Senate majority leader today, he wouldn't be able to do the things he did in the sixties. Those tools, first off the blatant corruption. He'd just, be indicted. Like. He could be, yes, he would be <laughs> indicted. He would be me too'd. Oh yes. He would not he be. He wouldn't last a week. No. Yeah. It, it, it would be unbelievable. You couldn't have a Lyndon Johnson type leader. And. The, but the institution itself has changed. It's no longer a geographic institution. Meaning Southern Democrats and Southern Republicans aligned against, you know, where you have Rockefeller in West Virginia and uh, Northeast Republic, other than Susan Collins. But even Susan Collins is mainly a Democrat. And Joe Manchin, for all his, I mean, Susan Collins is mainly a Republican. And Joe Manchin, as much as he annoys us, mainly votes mm -hmm. in line with Chuck Schumer and then annoys on a bunch of issues there's much more partisan alignment than there was. It's the real debate doesn't exist. And members, there's no, the legislative process itself is broken in that there's no real giant committee process. And to Schumer's credit, he's actually tried to bring some of the committee processes back in to function. But for probably around a decade, you can probably tell me better than I can tell me, a lot of the legislative functions were just leadership just did them. Mm -hmm. They stopped allowing the committees to to do them. Members stopped right. having a voice in legislation, especially in the House, but also in the Senate. And the an interesting, there's a procedure in the Senate called filling the tree, mm -hmm. which basically prevents the minority from offering amendments to any piece of legislation. And basically that's what's done on most legislation now, though Schumer has actually been much more open to allowing Republicans to amend bills and allowing Democrats to amend bills on the floor in these process things. Outside of Votoramas, there was like the China uh, trade bill that they did where it was like a two-week open amendment process. But the point is, there was a Senate that existed. That Senate doesn't exist. And institutionalists are trying to pull us back into that Senate. And it's, it's, a, fool's, it's a fool's game. It's not just the argument that the filibuster will go away when McConnell wants it to go away. It's the filibuster will eventually go away because that's not the Senate. The Senate's non-functional. Its software is broken. And like you said, there are people who are fine with that. Much Mitch McConnell is in some ways one of them. I think that yeah, because he gets his tax cuts, he gets his he gets judges, because the tax cuts his judges, and then he can. Not only does it mean that it makes makes it harder for Democrats to pass any social policy, but it makes it harder for Republicans to pass the kind of unpopular, yeah, broadly social policy that Mitch McConnell might say he supports, but actually would prefer just stay as a messaging vehicle. Yeah. Then Democrats do the same. Yes, it protects it protects them. The difference is the broad democratic social policy is broadly the stuff that would pass the Senate 
with 50 votes is broadly even right. if you had 50 let's say you get 53 like minimum wage is a great example the the person who was cussing you out for forcing them to take a vote on the minimum wage yeah. is, is and by the way who works for a member that is very publicly for minimum wage right it, and that that right there is why they like the parliamentarian because the parliamentarian can rescue them from some of those some of those votes well i think in the case of their member no because their member is out there super for like I don't think the NRA is contributing to that member. Hmm. That member is very for minimum wage. I think that person is institutional. Oh, you protect the members from difficult votes. We gather together. We circle the wagons. Yada, yada, yada. Ups upset vicariously for other. Yes, upset vicariously hmm. for the institution and for other. Why are you making Maggie Hass on this person didn't work for Maggie Hass? And why are you making right. her take this difficult vote? Right. And so uh, how do you see this ending up to wrap up? Because I know you gotta, you've been very generous with your time. But so let's say it does make it back to the Senate. I mean, um, I, I don't know. You have this weird, I think to me, from what I, I left the Senate in July, so I've been kind of outside this since. But to me, what I have seen the play that is being run as is get it down to one person, either Manchin or Cinema, opposed. And then it's very difficult for one person to stand. It's, it's just not going to. It's not going to happen. If one person, there's not going to be a singular senator that objects. Because people, well, what about John McCain? Well, no, he was he was the singular vote, but there were three other Republicans who voted. And and people also forget that that skinny repeal bill was DOA in the conference committee that it was headed to. Like it it didn't have a shot at getting through the House, and so there were they were still going to vote it down if it came back from the conference committee back to the Senate. So like in some ways it was a ceremonial no vote. Yeah. In this case, it's very difficult for a member to stand by themselves. And I think the plan has always seemed to be first get most of the moderates in the caucus on board, the warners, the testers, the et cetera, get them on board, which they all look to Schumer's credit. All of them came on board pretty early at 3.5 with everything. And I think really on board, not in a rotating villain sense. I think the way that bill is constructed and this is the problem with cutting it to 1.9 or 1.7 or whatever it's at now, is every senator has a piece of it they really like. And as they cut it, they're cutting senators' pieces mm -hmm. out. I think you, I think the plan was always to get down to one, isolate that one. And I'm obviously speaking for myself here, isolate that one and help hope to push it through. I think the problem is there are first off two. And there are two with separate and diverse motivations that one of whom is you can kind of know understand their motivations which is mansion and the other you can't understand her motivations because she doesn't talk about them mansion is actually fairly transparent like he'll tell you months in advance like i don't like this i don't like this i don't like this this mm -hmm. uh, cinema doesn't talk to the press she doesn't talk to activists she doesn't she certainly doesn't talk to bernie sanders people so there i have I don't know who understands what her motivations are here. And if you don't understand the motivations, it's very difficult to get to a, a deal. And neither one of them are people who can easily be bought with like earmarks or anything like that. I Like, you know, there was the joke, like all we have to do is just rename every bridge in West Virginia from Robert Byrd to Joe Manchin and we're good. But that, that doesn't really motivate Manchin. And with cinema, do you know what motivates her? I do not. And you've been reporting on it for months. I've known her a very long time, yeah. I do not know. I think she's there. Like I think she's most. I think she's basically there. Well, then it'll pass. If yeah. she's there, my bet is it passes. I've heard that she is still 
making noise about the pharmaceutical provision, even though she's agreed to it. Um, but I don't think that she can maintain that noise making quietly. Since that she's one, already publicly agreed to it. It's also the toughest one because just from a raw politics perspective, everybody hates pharma. Like, right. And she promised and she campaigned on it. She and, campaigned on it. Every Democrat has. It, it's an impossible. Like, I, I don't see anybody publicly standing up and saying the reason I voted against this bill was drug prices. I need to keep them high. Like you seniors, you're not paying enough. We need bigger drug prices. Like it's just it's so especially since it's it's not even direct drug prices. It's how much the government is paying for drug prices, which is it's in, you know, and when people hear it, even the rationale, the government can't negotiate drug prices with drug. Like it sounds stupid. Right. Like you can't. So they can just charge whatever they want and you pay it? That sounds crazy. I, I mean, and there's it's a complex system with these pharmaceutical benefit managers, et cetera. It's like all things in American healthcare, it is insane mm -hmm. and complex and doesn't make any sense. The point is it's politically indefensible. And you can see like, not just a primary challenger, but if I were a Republican, I'd get to the right on her. But by the way, there's a huge danger in the drug price thing that, and it's why you need to do the vision and dental and hearing as part of it. And the huge danger is Republicans, if you just do the Medicare prescription drug price cut, and let's say CBO says, I don't know what CBO is going to score this new one at. I know the original one was like 400 billion. I think they're I, now down to 250. So 250 billion. You better take every dollar of that and put it into hearing, dental, and vision. Or else they'll run on you cutting Medicare. Boom. Now they're going to do it anyway. Right. But this, this way, it doesn't even work. Right. Because how'd you cut Medicare? You, you, actually, you take the dollars from... I, I all you did was take the dollars and, right. from here and put them here. Right. And by the way, gave them something like when I was in the Senate advocating for this, a, a lot of members were like, well, we should put that money into Obamacare in the Obamacare subsidies. And I was on calls telling people that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard for a few reasons. One, I, one, just raw numbers, right? How many people get Obamacare subsidies in America? Like About 10 million. 10 million. Or, yeah. How many people are on Medicare in America? Tens of millions. It's yeah. uh, 80 million now yeah. or 50 million are on Medicare, 80 million on Medicaid. Um, if I was like, you know how you win an election? Make sure every elderly person in America walks into that voting booth with a pair of glasses that was paid for by Medicare. Guess what you're going to do? You're going to win an election. And also, we know the politics of this. They cut Medicare provider payments yeah. in 2009-10 in order to fund Obamacare. And, and Russ Republic Feingold lost his seat. And, right. Republicans ran on, you cut Medicare. Even though it was bullshit, right. you cut Medicare. And that's why you just have to put every dollar out. And it's not like there isn't a need. Like the, the idea that dental and vision and hearing aren't covered in Medicare is... Also, it's obscene. Yeah, it's yeah, it's stupid. It's like where we were when George Bush passed prescription drugs, which let's be clear. That's the other piece is Democrats have not expanded Medicare, which is our program. George Bush expanded the prescription drug program, which was necessary and great. But it was but a lot of Democrats voted against that mm -hmm. bill because, by the way, of exactly what we're talking about now, which is the no negotiating. Right. The Billy Tozen special. Right in there. Billy Tozen was a member of the House who went to go head pharma after inserting like the days later, like inserting this provision in that basically gave billions to pharma. And then it's a former Democrat who became a Republican. 
one of the southern Dems. Right. But pushed, and pushed it through and then immediately went and ran the farms. Which, by lobby. the way, is a cultural thing I think people miss about the Senate a lot is that class of people is kind of gone. The Trent Lotts, the... Richard Shelby is the only one left, I think. And he's retiring. Right. I think he's the last former Southern Democrat to switch and become a Republican. I think, yeah, I think he's the last one, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. he'll, he's retiring. But that's a cultural difference, that you had people who nominally were Democrats for at least the formative parts of their lives, who that culture doesn't exist anymore. Yep. Well, Ari, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan. That was Ari Raymanhoft, and that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by Brian Pugh. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Betsy Reed is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm Ryan Grimm, D.C. Bureau Chief of The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. And please do leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks so much. See you next week. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.